I was telling the folks at the conference this week that we have a, a dear fellow in our man, he just, uh, or in our church, he just celebrated his 100th birthday. And um, he's now in a nursing home. And uh, this week, uh, the attending physician at the nursing home happened to stop by and visit him and asked him how he was doing. And he said, well, I'm doing pretty well, I'm doing pretty well, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, going home to heaven and seeing my Savior. And um, the attending physician, in turn, tried to um, put him on a regiment of antidepressants. That's the world in which we live. They just don't understand. I'm sure we love where God has placed us now, and we want to serve him effectively all of our days. But is it okay for me to say even here that um, God's got a more beautiful place prepared for us than Bozeman, Montana? Right? Now, Now, he did a pretty good job here. Compared to Lafayette, Indiana, he did a pretty good job here. But are we all longing for heaven? I hope so, especially because uh, Jesus is there. And um, what that elderly man said was exactly right. I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well, Doc. Um, But um, I can't wait to get to heaven and see my Savior. And no, thank you very much. I don't need antidepressants because um, I'm perfectly balanced right now, just me and Jesus. So thank you, worship team, for um, serving us. I also just want to thank the many from this church family who made uh, this biblical counseling conference possible. It was really interesting for me just to step back as a speaker and watch um, the many faithful servants that you have in your church um, just so faithfully serve the guests that God brought here. And, um, you know, that... That becomes part of a church's DNA if God is at work, as people love to serve. And um, you serve the guests at this conference very, very well. And it was a delight to see and a delight to participate. I also want to thank um, Dan and Pam Gannon and um, Wayne and Sandy Walker for the way they treated our speakers and our families. My, oh, my, the incredible hospitality that we have been shown here has just been um, a delight. And I'm very, very thankful for that. I, I really believe as I just watched what unfolded here the last couple of days, that, that Jesus and his word were exalted in this place. And that was our goal, that was our prayer, and I believe by his grace um, that was accomplished. And, you know, it was also interesting for me to observe the significant number of people and churches that you're already impacting, even at the, the young stage of this conference. There were 350 to 400 persons, I'm told, who were here um, to hear the Word of God and to be equipped to go back into their churches and back into their communities to minister to those who are hurting with the sufficient Scripture. You may know that we have a, a similar conference at our church Um, Back in Lafayette, we hosted in the beautiful month of February, and um, uh, this year there were 1,900-plus people there, but that's after 30 years of hosting that conference. In our first couple of years, um, I think the first year was about 47, the second year was in the 70s. It took us several years of hosting that conference before we even exceeded 100, and you're already there plus in the first couple of years. And so what that makes me wonder is, I just step back and watch all of this unfold is I just wonder what God has in store for you Um, in the coming days if Christ would tarry his coming in terms of even additional impact in this part of the country and around the world. So um, thank you so much for your sacrificial service, and it's making a difference not just here but in a number of other communities in this part of the country, and to God be the glory, great things he has done. 
Now, um, to begin our time this morning, I'd like to tell you four short stories, but let me preface them by telling you these are all true. They'll sound a little outlandish, I assume, but these are all true. I'm not smart enough to make up stories like this. And what I want to ask you to do as you listen to these stories is think about um, what do each one of these persons involved um, have in common with one another? The first one is um, from a California community that sponsored a foot race as part of a summer festival. And to show off, a a bodybuilder entered the foot race with a refrigerator strapped to his back. And not surprisingly, he was injured uh, during the course of that event. Story number two, also from the world of sports, uh, two men who owned a hot air balloon also participated in a race, and after the race, their hot air balloon um, became wet in a rainstorm, and so they decided they wanted to dry it off quickly, so they went to a local laundromat, they stuffed the hot air balloon into a commercial-sized dryer, which exploded while it was drying this hot air balloon, injuring these two men in the process. Story number three. And moving from the world of sports to the world of pranks, uh, six mischievous youngsters set fire to a toad after dousing it with gasoline. In the process of uh, burning the toad, some of them also were, born, uh, were burned. Story number four, from the world now of lawn care. An obese man with a pre-existing condition of coronary artery disease was having trouble starting his pull-start lawnmower. In the course of trying to start his mower, he suffered a heart attack. Now, I would suggest to you that in those four stories I just told you, all of them true, they all had several commonalities. Surely, each person involved suffered some sort of an injury. We would all agree with that, would we not? Secondly, I think we would say that each person involved was doing something unwise that either um, directly caused or at least contributed to the injury that he or she suffered. Thirdly, I think we would say this, if we're thinking correctly, that each one of them should have learned a lesson that would have caused them to take responsibility for what had occurred in the past and would cause them to change their behavior in the future, right? Right? For example, the bodybuilder. There's a lesson he should have learned. Don't show off. Or if you're going to show off, do it with a, a dorm room-sized refrigerator instead of a full-size frigidaire. We would all say that. Or the guys with the hot air balloon. I think we would agree they should have had to pay for that dryer. And the lesson they should have learned was don't misuse a piece of equipment that a, a person in business has invested in in order to do his work or the kids in the toad. And they should have learned something, right? Don't play with gasoline. Don't abuse maybe God's creation, the beautiful toads. Or the man in his mower. He should have taken better care of his health perhaps. Or if nothing else, at least bought a Keystart lawnmower. But I'm saying that, that, that everybody involved in those stories, they, they should have learned lessons that, that would have caused them to change their behavior in the future and also take responsibility for what had already occurred. But my friends, this is the United States of America. And what I suggest it should happen is not even close to what actually occurred in those four cases that I mentioned. Uh, the bodybuilder with the fridge on his back 
He sued the manufacturer of the strap. That's right. The men in the hot air balloon, they sued the American dryer manufacturing industry, and they collected $885,000 in that case. The kids in the toad. You say, what did they do, sue the toad? (laughs) No, the toad did not have deep pockets. In fact, the toad had no pockets at all. Which is why the kids' parents got together and filed a class action lawsuit against the manufacturer of the gas can, the Eagle Manufacturing Company. The man and his mower, you probably know now where this is going, he sued Sears and Roebuck. And the jury in that case awarded him $1.7 million. Now, what's the point? The point is, in our day and age, the average consumer wants to assign a heavy weight of responsibility to everybody else in the equation, while assuming very little responsibility, him or herself. Would you agree with that premise? No question about that. That is the world in which we live, and we could illustrate that all day long. But we didn't come to the church house to talk about people out there, now did we? We came to the church house to talk about People in here. Is that right? That would be a good time for a yes. I got one little yes right there with a giggle, but that's all I got. <laughs> we came to talk about people in here. Why? Because judgment begins where? At the household of God. And I would suggest to you that that tendency that is illustrated by those four stories can also rub off on the people of God. In fact, I I would say, if I could just be so bold, which is why I've already identified the exit door, I'm sure to some degree it is true of everybody in this room, including the guy on this side of the pulpit. That tendency has a way of rubbing off on the people of God. I would also suggest that if that tendency exists in your life and you're married, it will have a dramatically negative impact on your marriage. Yeah. If that tendency exists in your life and you have children, it will dramatically impact negatively your ability to raise your kids well. It will have a dramatically negative impact on your friendships. It'll have a dramatically negative impact on the way you function in the workplace. It will absolutely negatively impact your relationships in the church. No question about that. Now, the good news is, that um, God not only talks to us about problems, He not only talks to us about ways that we ought to change, but He also gives us sufficient truth in His Word in order to help us get to a better place. And I want to invite you now to open your Bible to the book of 1 John. And we're going to talk about a principle that can help us overcome this very tendency that um, we're trying to illustrate this morning. So the book of 1 John in your Bible this morning... I don't know about you, but I love the book of 1 John. I love it for a whole lot of reasons. And one of them is because John is the kind of writer, and good writers do this, John is the kind of writer that actually articulates why it is that he wrote the book. And many times you can find purpose clauses in the Bible, often followed by that, the, the word that. And John is good enough to write, obviously, words under the inspiration of God uh, that articulate why he's writing. Two of them are found in the front of the book. The last one is found at the end. 
Let me just mention them in reverse order. The one at the end is in chapter 5, verse 13. One of my favorite verses, the verse that God actually used to draw me to himself. 1 John 5, 13, which says, These things, John's saying, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, so that, there's our purpose clause, so that um, you may know that you have eternal life. So what is one of the reasons that John wrote the book of 1 John? So that you would have greater assurance of your salvation. That's a great one for sure. Now go back, if you would, to the front of your Bible, or the front of the book of 1 John, to verses 3 and 4, and you see the other two purposes of this book. You'll see them if you watch for the the purpose clauses. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that, here it is, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Then the next one, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. There's the three purposes of the book of 1 John. From chapter 5, verse 13, that you would have greater assurance of your salvation. From 1 John 1, 3, that you would have greater fellowship with God and man, and from 1 John 1, 4, that your joy would be full. Now that is a hefty set of promises. If a book can give you that, that's worth studying, is it not? That you would have greater assurance of your salvation, that you would have greater fellowship with God and man, and that your joy would be made complete. That's a book worth studying for sure. Now, of those three, they're all great, no question about that. But the one that I find especially attractive is the second one. The one in chapter 1, verse 3, where John talks about us having, at least potentially, greater fellowship with God. Greater fellowship with God. It's the Greek word koinonia. Fellowship, a warm, think about it now. A warm, intimate, authentic, growing relationship personally with the God of heaven. We're not talking about religion here. We're not talking about rules. We're not talking about ritual. We're talking about an authentic vibrant, growing, personal relationship, koinonia, with the very God of heaven and earth. Interestingly enough, that word is never used in the Old Testament. You may know that we have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint. The word um, koinonia is never used in the Old Testament to speak about God's relationship with a human being. But now things are different because as we were singing earlier, Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And God accepted his payment by miraculously raising him from the dead. And now it's possible for us to have our sin forgiven. It's possible for the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to our account. It's possible for us to have an entirely different kind of relationship with God, which is why Jesus says, now I no longer simply call you my servants. I also call you my friends. My friends, it's possible for you to have koinonia with the very God of heaven and earth. The reason I say that I find that especially attractive is because there are so many people I talk to as a pastor who say something like this to me, I just don't feel very close to the Lord anymore. I just don't, I just don't feel like the relationship I have with God is as real as I wish it was, is as, as genuine, as, as authentic, is as vibrant as I, you understand what that is, don't you? I mean, surely if we're going to be honest this morning, I think we would say, well, I I can relate to that. I I don't always have the fellowship with God that I wish I did. That that relationship is not as alive, as vibrant, as genuine, as authentic. There there are times something deficient in my koinonia. 
Now, now, here's what you have to observe about that, and you, you can certainly relate to this if you've been a Christian for uh, any period of time. There's a difference between being busy, busy, busy and doing a bunch of stuff, even if it's churchy stuff or religious stuff, and actually having koinonia with God. Isn't that right? You can be doing all sorts of stuff. You can be as busy as all get out, and actually your koinonia is becoming less and less and less all the time. I was um, in Bible college, and like most Bible college students, I had all sorts of different jobs just to try to stay ahead of the tuition man. And, and one of the jobs that God allowed me to have when I was in Bible college was working at a, a chicken plant, a chicken factory. It was in downtown Scranton, Pennsylvania, not far from the Bible college where I attended, a chicken factory. Now, we didn't make chickens. We, um, we, uh, we, we dressed them out. And they came, they'd already been killed and somewhere else, and they'd had the fellers off or whatever. And so the, the purpose of the particular factory that I worked in was to um, dress them out finally and uh, make these boneless chicken breasts. That's why that whole factory existed. And here I am as a squeaky clean Bible college student working at this check chicken factory with a whole bunch of people from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who had not been anywhere near a Bible college. It was, it was a fascinating experience for sure. And it was interesting when you first first got a job there, they didn't trust you with anything. And frankly, as I got to know some of my coworkers and their criminal past, I understood why they'd be a little bit hesitant on the front end to trust you. So here's the way it worked when you first started. All you did for eight hours was pulled skin off of those chickens. And so those chickens come bouncing down. Now, they're already killed. Don't get nervous. They're already killed and all that sort of thing. The feathers are off. They come bouncing down the, the conveyor belt like this, and you'd have to pull them off, pull off the skin, put the chicken back down, pull it off, pull off the skin. And for eight hours, that's what you would do. I found some very creative things to do with that wet, smelly chicken skin, by the way, but we won't get into that. But anyway, that's the way, that's the way you started. Then, if you were trustworthy with that, you got a promotion. And the promotion was up to the, the next part of the line where for eight hours you would take the chickens that had just had the skin pulled off and then you would turn that thing over and crack it like that and pull out the bone. And crack it like that, pull out the backbone. So for eight hours, that's all you're doing. Crack, 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 pulling off the bone, pulling off the bone, pulling off the bone. Now, if you were proficient at that, and frankly, many people never got beyond that point, but, but if you were proficient at that, the, the highest rung on the ladder at that place vocationally was when they gave you a knife. Now, again, with a number of the people that I worked with, you would never want them to have a knife. So honestly, it was a, it was a pretty proud day when I was promoted to the knife line. Because that's when you, you took the, the, the final stage of the chicken and you would actually fillet out those final little bones and then you would have a, a finished product, a, a boneless chicken breast. And there, I noticed, because you can see them all in the factory, that the, the ladies who were on that line, they had been there a long, long time and they were really, really good at what they did. In fact, what surprised me was how fast they were, how much work they could get done without even acting like they were paying attention. They were having these full-blown conversations about all sorts of things, yet they were filleting out that chicken like crazy. And so here I am, this Bible college student who gets promoted, me and the ladies from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I am I'm quite concerned that I pull my weight. I'm quite concerned that my testimony is good. I'm quite concerned that, that I um, fillet as many chickens as they're filleting. And so I, I get on the line for the first time. I'm a little bit nervous about the whole thing because I've never done this before. I want to be a good testimony. I won't, don't want to be lazy. And, and, and so they give me my knife. I'm all ready. They start the conveyor belt. The chickens come plopping down. Everybody pulls theirs off and they start filleting, start filleting. And as I said, these ladies, they're going like crazy. Yet yeah, they, it's just amazing. And, and what I found was... Um, 
if I didn't yakety-yak very much, if I just kept focusing on what I was doing, I could pull my weight. I could do my share of the chickens that I was supposed to pulling up. So I'm going and going and going, just going as fast as I could, as hard as I could to try to keep up. And it was fine until I noticed that um, the boss, uh, the manager there, was coming down the line and he was stopping people. He was taking their knife and sharpening it. And I'm really nervous as I'm watching this because I'm thinking, if he takes my knife, I'm going to get behind. I'm going to have chickens stacked up to the ceiling. I'm not going to be doing my work. I'm not going to be carrying my load. So I was really nervous about that guy. So all of a sudden, he gets right next to me, and he taps me on the shoulder. He says, give me your knife. I said, listen, it's still sharp. It doesn't need to be sharpened yet. He said, give me your knife. I said, listen, I'm afraid I'm going to get behind here and not pull my weight. He said, give me your knife. So finally, I reluctantly gave the guy my knife, and he, he, he knocked it on a steel a couple of times, sharpened it, gave it back. I'm all nervous. I grab the thing very quickly, go through the next chicken, and right into my hand. Ew, I know. Thankfully, um, they had us wear these protective gloves, so at least I can continue to do that this morning. But, but here's the point I'm making. I had no idea that knife was getting dull. I had no idea, time after time after time, busy, busy, activity, activity. I had no idea that that knife was getting duller and duller and duller until I compared it to what? To a knife that was now sharp. Isn't it possible that that happens for you and me with our koinonia with God? With our fellowship with God? It's possible for us to be busy, 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 doing, 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 activity, 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 even, even churchy stuff, even religious stuff. But all the while, what's happening? Our koinonia is becoming duller and duller and duller and duller. And you might be here this morning and say, you know, I kind of feel that. If I were going to be honest, if I were going to be authentic, I can remember times in my life where that were the case. Or you might even say, that could be true to some degree right now. Well, here's the good news. There's a principle in this passage of Scripture that can help us overcome that tendency. And I'm going to now read, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, and I want to ask you to be looking for the principle that we're talking about that can help us develop greater koinonia with our God. In 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, there's our word, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Follow the argument. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Did you hear that? And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, listen to how verse 8 gets repeated again. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. Father, would you help us now as we think about these verses of Scripture together? And I pray that we would be very sensitive to the work that the Holy Spirit of God might want to do in our hearts individually through this text. And Lord, we want to commit these next few moments especially to you. Would you help us learn from your word in a way that would help us grow? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And we're talking this morning about the matter of walking in the light. 
And with the time we have remaining, I would like us to divide the argument of this text into four main points. The first is the principle um, stated. Then we're going to talk about the principle explained. Then thirdly, the principle in action. And lastly, the principle made attainable. I hope you saw the principle as we read it. But now we're going to talk about the principle stated. What is it? Uh, Then the principle explained. What does it mean? Then third, the principle in action. What does it look like fleshed out for you and me? And then fourthly, the principle made attainable. How in the world can you and I get to this place where this principle is actually being fleshed out actively in our lives? First of all, the principle stated. Here's what it is, as simply as I know how to say it. Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. There it is, koinonia. Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. Now, if you've studied the book of 1 John before, you probably knew that. You probably could have stated that without me saying it. Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. But I would then respond to that with this. What does walking in the light mean? See, sometimes we're guilty as followers of Jesus Christ of knowing certain Bible terminology and even using certain Bible terminology without really carefully thinking through. What does that actually mean? Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? For example, if I asked you this morning, have you been walking in the light in the month of July, how would you answer that? And if I asked you, can you give me some specific examples that would back up your answer of whether or not you have been walking in the light? What specific examples would you give? So we don't grow in fuzzy land. God's a precise God. The Bible is a specific book. So what does it mean, friend? to to walk in the light, and are you a person who has been in the habit of walking in the light recently? Well, let's try to answer that by moving from the principle stated to the principle explained. When John talks about walking in the light, according to verse 8 and verse 10, he's referring to having an open attitude toward admitting our sin. You saw it in the text, didn't you? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's the point, friends. When John talks about walking in the light, he's talking about having an open attitude toward admitting our sinfulness. There it is. Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. And walking in the light means I have an open attitude toward my sin being exposed and my sin being addressed. See, that's what light does. Walking in the light, what does light do? It exposes. In fact, you could jot down John 3.20 if you're trying to follow this from the Gospel of John, which says this, For everyone who does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be what? Exposed. Reproved, that's what light does. Light always exposes something. Let me try to illustrate that, ladies. Does your house appear cleaner at 10 o'clock at night or at high noon? I'm not asking you, is it cleaner? I'm saying, does it appear cleaner at 10 o'clock at night or at high noon? We all know the answer to that, don't we? It looks cleaner when it's dark, right? Right? Because when it's bright, when it's light, and the sun is coming in the windows, what does that light do? It exposes. In my office, I mean, our maintenance staff does a great job. And so at night, my office looks way clean. It's amazing, though, at high noon, when the light is coming through the window in my office, how much dirt is just exposed. 
That's what light does. Fellowship, koinonia of God, if we want it, fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. And walking in the light means I have an open attitude toward admitting my own sin. You can say it this way. The first John 1 man is the polar opposite of the Genesis 3 man. What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? How did they respond? They ran, they hid, they tried to cover it up, and they tried to blame it on someone else. Well, that's the last time that ever happened, huh? (laughs) We're in the church house. And some, maybe many of us would have to say, that happened this week where I was like the, the Genesis 3 man where I did something that displeased God and maybe hurt somebody else in my life. And instead of walking in the light, instead of having an open attitude toward acknowledging my own sin, I was like Adam and Eve. I ran, I hid, I covered it up, and I tried to blame it on someone else. See, are you a Genesis 3 kind of person or a 1 John 1 kind of person? Are you walking in the light? You might want to think about it from this perspective. If you were going to rank yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on the issue of walking in the light, how well are you doing? How open are you to acknowledging your own sin? And you understand that there's nobody in this room who could say, perfect, right? We're, on a, we're all on a continuum. If that end of the continuum is the Genesis 3 man, run, hide, cover, blame, and that end of the continuum is the first John 1 man walking in the light, having an open attitude toward admitting his sin. We're all somewhere on that continuum. Is that right? There's not a person in this room who can say, I am perfect at that. <laughs> because John said, what you are if you say you're perfect at that. It's not a very nice word. It's liar. So we're all somewhere on this continuum. And I would just ask you, honestly, before God this morning, where are you on that continuum? Here, here's a dare. Can I dare you? I dare you to ask somebody in your life who's close to you to help you identify yourself on that question. Now, you might have to say to your honey, because many of you are married here, you got your honey sitting right next to you. Be careful. Um, you might have to say to your honey, listen, I'm going to ask you a question, and I, I, I want you to honestly answer it, and I am not going to get mad at you or however you answer. Or I'm not going to do the pout thing. I'm not going to pull the cold shoulder, slow freeze thing for the next three days if you're honest with me. I really want you to help evaluate me, honey. Do you think I'm the kind of person who walks in the light? Do you find me to be a person who's approachable, who when I have sinned in some way, do you find me the kind of person where you can come and talk to me about that without drama and without all of the silliness, and I'm the kind of person who is going to quickly acknowledge my side of this issue? Honey, baby... They evaluate me on the issue of walking in the light. You could also, if, you're, if you really you want to double dog dare, you, you could do this. You could say, honey, what things could I stop doing that would help me walk in the light more in my relationship with you? Or what are some of the things that you would like to see me start doing in order to be the kind of person who more walks in the light with you? I'm just asking you, are you a Genesis 3 kind of person or a 1 John 1 kind of person? Now, here's a very important point in the logic, I I think, is this. The question isn't the fact whether or not we sin. The question is your attitude toward the fact. Isn't that right? It's very clear in the text. The question is not, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The question is not the fact. It is what is my attitude toward the fact. And I would suggest that makes all the difference in the world. 
my attitude, my evaluation, my narrative about what it is that I have just done. Attitude makes all the difference in the world. For example, let's say you you bought a car, bought a used car, and it came with a one-year warranty. And the guy who sold you that car said, if this thing breaks down for any reason, bring it back, and I will fix it, no questions asked. So you're about six months into that warranty. You're driving down the road. All of a sudden, your car makes an incredible noise. Bam, 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 bam. The people around you are actually looking at you like, what in the world is that hot mess you're driving? Thankfully, you're right by at the place that sold you the car. Hey, you ease that car into their parking lot. People who worked are even looking out the window. They can hear it so bad. Bam, 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 bam. The, the guy comes out who sold you that car, and he hears it too. Now, I would suggest what he says next is going to determine whether you're going to have a pleasant afternoon or one that's really bad. Right? There's no question about the fact. The question is his attitude toward the fact. If he said, man, that is bad. I heard you coming. We sold you that car. I remember. I remember the promise. I remember the warranty. Here, have a cup of coffee. We're going to get that thing on the rack and fix it right away. And absolutely, there will be no charge. That's going to be one kind of afternoon. But if he says to you, noise, noise, I don't hear any noise, you're going to have an entirely different kind of day. See, your attitude makes all the difference in the world Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. Walking in the light means I have an open attitude toward admitting my sin. There's an interesting, by the way, biblical example of this in the book of 2 Samuel, um, chapter 16. It's about King David, who's a fascinating person in the Bible, is he not? Obviously, King David failed in some pretty significant ways, and yet the New Testament refers to David as a, what? A man after God's own heart. How could that? How, what? I think 2 Samuel 16 helps us understand that. If you know your Bible, you'll remember this text. David and his mighty band of men are fleeing from David's rebellious son, Absalom. And so the scripture says that they're fleeing from Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 16, they come up to a place where there's a cliff and there's a guy named Shimei. Remember Shimei? And scripture says that Shimei is actually throwing rocks and dust down on David's head. And he's cursing David, and he's essentially saying, the reason you're experiencing this trial is because of your sin, David. Now, if you know your Bible, you also remember this. David, as I said, was there with his mighty band of men. I love those guys. And one of his mighty band of men was named Abishai. And you remember what Abishai said to David about Shimei? He said, why should that dead dog curse my Lord? How about if I go and cut off his head? I like a guy like that, don't you? Now, what would you have said if you were David? (laughs) Go for it, deacon so-and-so, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Right? Absolutely go take off his head. Absolutely that dead dog shouldn't be cussing me. What did David say? Remember? He says, no, leave him alone. Perhaps the Lord has bidden him. That's walking in the light. See, fellowship with God, and David knew a lot about that. Fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. Walking in the light means I have an open attitude toward admitting my sin. Here's another important aside. Following this principle is going to have impact not only on your fellowship with God, but it's also going to have impact on your fellowship with other people. In fact, that comes up in verse 7 if you just follow the argument. Uh, The text says this, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship. We would have assumed at that point of the argument he would say with God. But instead he says with one another. 
Because see, it works both ways. If I walk in the light, it increases my fellowship with God. But if I walk in the light, it also increases my fellowship with other people. And listen, this is why there's so much tension in many Christian homes. Because one or both people are not walking in the light. Instead, one or both are spending so much time thinking about and focusing on the failures of the other person that they have no time to focus on what they did and how they need to change. Am I telling the truth? And I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to the person sitting right next to you. But, but is that not the truth? And it can be so silly, just silly, silly, silly stuff that robs off of us of koinonia in the home. Like, like let's say there's a, a godly wife and she decides uh, one morning she's going to show love to her hubby by waking up early and making him a great breakfast. So she's got the whole breakfast thing going on, which of course includes bacon in several of the courses. So she's got all that going on and eggs and just a whole, just a beautiful breakfast. Her, her louse of a husband actually decides that he's going to sleep in that morning. And so he's timing it to the very last second before he has to get out of bed and jump through the shower. Barely, it barely brushes teeth and go running all to the house in order to get to work. And so she's done all of that. And he, the louse, goes flying by, doesn't even notice the great breakfast she's made. She puts out her lips at least for a kiss on the way by. And he goes right on by. Now she's got to decide what she's going to focus on all day. And what do you think that wife's probably going to focus on? He doesn't love me. He doesn't respect me. He doesn't appreciate me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't appreciate me all day long. Right? And she's loaded for bear by the time he comes home. Well, on the other hand, he's had a wonderful day. He didn't know anything about the breakfast. Didn't know anything about the nothing. And so he's a louse. Did I mention that? He's a louse. So he comes zipping up the sidewalk. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. And he puts his big fat lips out for a kiss. And she has to decide what she's going to do in response. And because she's not going to be walking in the light, she's focusing on his failures. She turns her head around and stomps herself right off. And now he's got a decision to make. What's he going to focus on? And instead of thinking about, now, have I sinned in some way that I need to ask forgiveness for? No, he's going to start focusing on her. And so the way he focuses on her is he gets in, the, in his chair and he gets the newspaper around his face and he starts the muttering game. You know what I'm talking about? Talking just loud enough so she can hear. She doesn't love me. She doesn't appreciate me. She's just like her mother. <laughs> right? Been reading your mail, right? right? There's no question about that. And what's wrong with all of that? Other than it just being absolutely ridiculous. There's no koinonia in that home. Well, there's no walking in the light. Matthew 7 has been violated. Jesus said, when you're having a problem with another person, before you try to get the, the log out of their eye, before you try to get the, the speck out of their eye, you get the log out of your own, right? Does that come natural for you? When you're having a difficulty with another person, do you just automatically walk in the light? Do you just automatically focus on some way that you need to change? Let's be honest. That is not, um, uh, that is not uh, equipment that comes automatically in our life. It's the polar opposite. The polar opposite. Uh, we had a house when we first moved to Lafayette that had nine-foot-high basement walls, poured concrete walls. 
We're trying to teach our little daughter, Bethany, how to ride her bike in the wintertime. So we're down in the basement, and I'm just going around and around and around, little circles like this, going really, really slow. She's kind of independent. I don't know where she got that. And so so she, she eventually says, Daddy, I got it. You don't have to hold me anymore. And so I backed off, and she's going faster and faster and faster, not realizing that the faster she's going, the larger her circles are becoming. Finally, she runs right into one of those poured concrete walls. Here's exactly what she said. Daddy, the man who built this house hadn't should have put that wall there. (laughs) Seriously, where'd she get that? Did I have to sit down and tell her, now listen, Bethany, when something goes bad, find somebody else to blame it on. I mean, where did she get that? Hanging out with the deacon's kids. That's where she got that. I mean, obviously. (laughs) No. No, no, why, why, why do um, little leopards have spots? Because big leopards have spots. And that's another way to think about this is, are our children growing up in, a, in homes where they see mama and daddy at walking in the light? See, fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. And walking in the light means I have an open attitude toward admitting my sin. Hey, wouldn't it be great if there was a test we could take right now to determine how well we're walking in the light? Hey, wouldn't it be great if we had a test right now? We could take, you'd want to take that test, would you not? To determine how open I am to having my sin exposed? Well, we've talked about um, the principle stated. We've talked about the principle explained. Let's talk about the principle in action. You know this verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, here's the point. Show me a person who's walking in the light, and I'll show you a person who is regularly confessing sin to God and regularly asking forgiveness of the other people in his or her life. It's amazing to me in counseling how frequently I will ask a man, when's the last time you asked forgiveness for anything from your wife? And for him to sit there dumbfounded and could not give one example. I've asked a number of rebellious teenagers over the years, can you tell me a time where mom or dad ever asked your forgiveness for anything? I've had a number of young people say, I have never heard my dad say he was wrong. I've never heard my mom ever ask forgiveness for anything. See, you can tell whether or not you're walking in the light by how frequently you're confessing your sin to God and how frequently you're asking forgiveness of other people in your life. Now, if we're honest, and we really ought to be in the church house, I hope we would say that's about the hardest thing in the world to do, to to actually admit that I was wrong. That's where verses 1 and 2 come into this discussion. We've talked about the principle stated, the principle explained, the principle in action. Now let's talk about the principle made attainable. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. This is where the gospel comes into this discussion, because this tells us two things about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you know him personally, that makes walking in the light much more attainable. What are those two things? First, he's our advocate. What does that mean? It means he's our attorney. And the picture is, uh, according to Scripture, the devil accusing us day and night before the throne of God. Revelation 12, 10, I don't, know, I don't understand it fully, but it says, the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accused them before our God day and night. And I don't know about you, but the devil doesn't have to make up stuff about me. He can just state it pretty objectively and make me look really, really bad. 
And the Bible says Jesus is our advocate. He, he pleads our case. He argues on my behalf, but, but not on the merits of the case alone. Jesus is not saying, well, Steve's a pretty good guy. Steve didn't mean that. Steve does a lot of things right. I would suggest to you, friend, that Jesus could not be our advocate unless he was also our propitiation. And the picture is of our adversary accusing us day and night, and the case looks pretty bad until our attorney stands up, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who points to the wounds in his hands, who points to the wound in his side, who says to the heavenly Father, that sin has already been addressed on the cross of Calvary. And I would suggest to you that at that moment, our heavenly Father wraps the gavel and says, case dismissed. And what I'm suggesting to you is that when we fail to walk in the light, when we fail to have an open attitude toward admitting our sin, we are not benefiting from our position in Christ. And the more we understand him as our advocate and as our propitiation, that should make walking in the light easier. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the person and work of your son. We want to thank you that it's possible for us to have fellowship with you and fellowship with others. But we would acknowledge, Lord, often we don't walk in the light the way we should. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to think about that today. I pray that you would help us to make whatever adjustments are necessary in order to walk in the light more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.